executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about Rashida Tlaib and the censure that happened last week in Congress. It's a pretty interesting story. We're going to talk about how it came to be, what it means, and I'm going to share my take on the whole thing. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, and before we jump in, we're going to start things off with some quick hits. First up, the Supreme Court said on Monday that it is adopting a code of ethics for its justices. All nine justices signed the code, which generally follows the same rules as lower courts and relies on self-enforcement. Number two, a Secret Service agent protecting President Biden's granddaughter opened fire after a group of people tried to break into their unmarked government vehicle. Number three, retired federal judge Marianne Trump Barry, Donald Trump's older sister, died at the age of 86. Number four, Representative Abigail Spanberger, the Democrat from Virginia, will not seek re-election, but will instead run for Virginia governor in 2025. And number five, year-over-year inflation dipped to 3.2% last month as gas prices fell, cooling significantly from the previous month and exceeding economists' expectations. Meanwhile, the House voted yesterday to censure Democratic Congressman Rashida Tlaib over her remarks related to the Israel-Hamas war. 22 Democrats joined Republicans to formally rebuke the only Palestinian-American in Congress. The resolution accuses her of promoting false narratives surrounding Hamas's attack on Israel. It also cites her use of the phrase from the river to the sea, which is regarded as a call for the eradication of Israel as a Jewish state. I will not be silenced, and I will not let you distort my words. I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, just like anyone else. The cries of the Palestinian and Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me. Why? What? I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sound different to you all. On Tuesday last week, the House voted 234 to 188 to censure Tlaib for her rhetoric about the Israel-Hamas war. 22 Democrats joined Republicans to censure Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress, and all but four Republicans voted for the censure. Although a censure carries no practical impact for members of Congress, it is the most severe condemnation a representative can receive from their colleagues. Tlaib, who has family in the West Bank, came under fire after initially failing to condemn Hamas in the wake of the October 7th attack in Israel. Nearly all Democrats initially stood by her, but some, including prominent Jewish members, abandoned their support for her after she posted a video calling for a ceasefire where protesters were chanting, quote, from the river to the sea. Tlaib was also censured for blaming the bombing of Al-Ali Hospital on Israel, a claim that has since been undercut by evidence in recent weeks. The slogan from the river to the sea, which describes Palestine as covering the area from the Jordan River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, 
has been an intense flashpoint in the debate around the conflict. Many critics say it is an open call for the abolition of Israel as a Jewish state and, in theory, the genocide or forced displacement of Israelis and Jews. It is listed as an anti-Semitic expression by the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Committee. Many extremist groups, including Hamas, have used the expression to call for Israel's destruction. It is nothing else but the call for the destruction of Israel and murder of Jews, Representative Brad Schneider, the Democrat from Illinois, said. I will always defend the right to free speech. Tlaib has the right to say whatever she wants, but it cannot go unanswered. However, many Palestinian activists, including Tlaib, say it is simply a call for Palestinian freedom. Tlaib defended herself, pledging that she will not be silenced and not allow her colleagues to distort her words. Some Palestinian historians have argued that the original meaning of From the River to the Sea was a genuine call for a one-state solution where Palestinians and Arabs were living side by side with Israelis and Jews in harmony. From the River to the Sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate, Tlaib said on Twitter. She added that her criticism of Israel has always been about their government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, not Jews or Israelis. It is important to separate people and government, she said. The idea that criticizing the government of Israel as anti-Semitic sets a very dangerous precedent, and it's been used to silence diverse voices speaking up for human rights across our nation. Many Democrats criticized the censure of Tlaib, arguing that she is being targeted for being a Muslim and Palestinian. The censure is another shameful but predictable ploy of distraction from the real traffickers of hate who are obsessed with policing progressive women of color, Progressive Representative Ayanna Presley, the Democrat from Massachusetts, said. Today, we're going to explore some arguments from the left and the right about the censure and then my take. All right, before we jump into our next section, we're going to take a quick commercial break. First up, we'll start with what the left is saying. Many on the left disagree with the House's vote to censure Tlaib, though their reasoning differs. Some suggest the censure flies in the face of democratic values, while others say Congress has misplaced priorities. Supporters of the censure say Tlaib's comments were reprehensible and needed to be rebuked. In Common Dreams, Jeffrey C. Isaac argued that the attacks on Rashida Tlaib are attacks on the ethos of pluralist democracy. She might do well for her own sake and for the sake of her cause to avoid loaded slogans and focus more on the concrete injustices that she rightly challenges. But that is for her to decide. And Tlaib's real crime is not the video. It is her consistent advocacy of Palestinian rights, Isaac wrote. And so she is the subject of derision, scorn, denunciation, and political attacks, and the recipient of regular death threats that have now led to her being censured by a majority of her House colleagues. None of those attacks are nefarious or illegal. People have the right to denounce politicians they don't like and to oppose them or support candidates they do like. At the same time, the relentless and vitriolic attacks on Tlaib because of her stance on this one issue are deeply disturbing. And while they do not violate the letter of the law, they are in tension with its spirit because they implicitly or explicitly attack two indispensable norms of pluralistic democracy that are often considered guardrails by supporters of democracy. In Jacobin, Branko Marchetic said after weeks of Israeli war crimes, Rashida Tlaib is the one getting censured. In an outrageous act, the U.S. House has censured Rashida Tlaib for her criticism of Israel's war on Gaza. All she's done is to call for peace for everyone in historic Palestine, at the same time Israel bombs hospitals and U.S. politicians dehumanize Palestinians, Marchetic said. Every single one of Tlaib's public statements has either condemned the disgusting attacks carried out by Hamas on October 7th 
or called them war crimes and stressed the equal preciousness of both Israeli and Palestinian life. Even if you're absolutely convinced the slogan itself is violent, it's not, but even if you do, it's willfully dishonest to claim that's how Tlaib was using it. The Washington establishment has concocted a made-up narrative that a slogan about Palestinian liberation is actually a call for violence, worked themselves up into a lather about it, and used it to distract from not just actual widespread calls for violence coming from Washington and Tel Aviv, but the actual literal violence being carried out by the Israeli government with U.S. backing. After all, the more time and energy we spend debating a protest chant and what it means, the less we spend talking about the indiscriminate slaughter that is already deadlier than many horrific wars this century. Don't fall for it. In the Tennessean, Representative Steve Cohen, the Democrat from Tennessee, wrote about why he voted to censure my fellow Democrat. My vote was prompted by my conscience and the need to have honest information about what happened on October 7th and what is happening in Gaza now. This was not a vote I took lightly. I listened to the entire debate on this issue, as well as colleagues and constituents, before making my decision. In that context, I felt the need to publicly rebuke the spreading of misinformation by a member of Congress, Cohen said. In this terrible time, we must speak carefully. Instead of condemning the murder of innocent people carried out in some of the most horrific and dehumanizing ways, Congresswoman Tlaib stated that the horrors we saw unfold in Israel on October 7th were resistance to Israeli policies. The murder of innocent civilians is never a legitimate form of resistance and should not be seen as such. If any member of Congress had said something similar, blaming the victims or justifying their deaths after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, I would have voted to censure them as well. All right, that is it for what the left is saying, which brings us to what the right is saying. The right is mostly supportive of the censure, arguing Tlaib's comments were explicitly anti-Semitic. Some say those on the left who defend Tlaib are undermining their credibility on other progressive issues. Others say the censure is not the right way for Congress to respond to its members' political speech. In Fox News, David Marcus said Tlaib's comments revealed how the left really feels on anti-Semitism. The entire basis of critical race theory is that motivation or intent is completely irrelevant when judging if a statement is racist. Why is this rule different for anti-Semitism, Marcus asked. We have also been told that demographic groups themselves decide what is and isn't offensive to say about them. If a black person or a gay person or a Martian tells us something crosses a line, the left says we must respect that. But here, we have Jews all over the country insisting not only that these slogans are anti-Semitic and hurtful, but that they are causing legitimate fear of violence. This is the pernicious and predictable actual bigotry of a progressive left that can only see things through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. In this sad, twisted matrix, the oppressed can never be wrong, no matter how foul their motivations, no matter how many they kill. And the oppressor, unless they're actively fighting the alleged oppression, props up systemic bigotry merely by existing, Marcus said. For today's American progressive, the double standard is the point. The rules of political correctness were never rules at all. They were an academic Rube Goldberg device meant to distract from the left's one and only true goal, power. In Commentary Magazine, Seth Mandel said Congress did the right thing by censuring Tlaib. Censure is the most serious reprimand shy of expulsion from the House, and Tlaib's genocidal incitement cheering on the violent designs of those already attempting to carry out their murderous aims certainly earned it, Mandel said. Putting from the river to the sea at the center of the censure motion was important and was foreshadowed by a specific type of response that bodes well for the American Jewish community, Mandel said. 
Members of Congress have resisted the temptation to say something like, that's not how Jews hear it, or that's how Hamas interprets it and that's what it matters, or the like, which would be an error and would also be inaccurate. The phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is not, in fact, open to interpretation, Mandel said. Those hoping for actual peace and self-determination for Israelis and Palestinians, for Jews and Arabs, should hope Tlaib's aspirations go unfulfilled. In Red State, Jeff Charles wrote the censure will not solve the anti-Semitism problem. What good will censure do anyway? In the grand scheme of things, having lawmakers vote to say, hey, Tlaib, we don't like your anti-Semitism, isn't going to get her to stop. She will continue lashing out at the Jewish people while downplaying the brutality of Hamas. Tlaib has no reason to rethink her rhetoric. Her voters will continue supporting her no matter what she says. Unfortunately, these people aren't going away anytime soon, censure or no censure, Charles said. The anti-Semitism shown by the likes of Tlaib, Representative Alan Omar, and others is best fought on the battlefield of ideas, not the halls of Congress. One cannot legislate against bigotry no matter how hard they try. The way to fight it is for more people to continue speaking out and educating the public on issues involving Israel, Hamas, and other factions of this conflict, Charles added. If we truly wish to fight back against purveyors of anti-Jewish bigotry, it would make more sense to meet bad speech with good speech instead of relying on Congress to pass a resolution. All right, that is it for what the left and the right are saying, which brings us to my take. So let me start by saying that I don't think Tlaib should have been censured. Censures have long been one of the harshest ways to condemn someone in Congress. They are a permanent mark on a member's record, a branding that this person breached the rules of Congress and needs to be eternally marked for their actions. Because it is so subjective, finding the line of when a censure is appropriate is something few people will agree on. But Only 26 members have ever been censured in U.S. history, including Tlaib. Paul Gosar, the Republican from Arizona, got censured recently for posting an animated video of a character beheading his colleague, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York. Other members of Congress have been censured for things like bribery and sexual misconduct. Even George Santos, the Republican from New York who very clearly lied about his qualifications and is probably guilty of fraud, has avoided a censure. Comparing that to what Tlaib did, not even saying from the river to the sea herself, but posting a video where some protesters were chanting it for a few seconds, does seem a little overboard to me. Context is also important. Given the subjectivity of something like a censure, I think it is worth calling out how isolated Tlaib really is in Congress. She's the only Palestinian American in the legislature. She has family in the West Bank. She has a unique responsibility, and I imagine an unbelievable amount of pressure coming from her community to speak out for Palestinians. As someone who just spent weeks getting heat from, quote-unquote, my people over my writing about Israel and Palestine, I empathize with her. All that said, and putting the censure aside, though, I think Tlaib is very, very wrong. First, I found her initial response to the attacks highly insufficient, not for what she said, but for what she didn't say. Not many people have published the full statement, but this is what she released on October 8th, a full day after it had become clear what Hamas did in Israel. Quote, I grieve the Palestinian and Israeli lives lost yesterday, today, and every day. I'm determined as ever to fight for a just future where everyone can live in peace without fear and with true freedom, equal rights, and human dignity. The path to that future must include lifting the blockade, ending the occupation, and dismantling the apartheid system that creates the suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that can lead to resistance. 
The failure to recognize the violent reality of living under siege, occupation, and apartheid makes no one safer. No person, no child anywhere should have to suffer or live in fear of violence. We cannot ignore the humanity in each other. As long as our country provides billions in unconditional funding to support the apartheid government, this heartbreaking cycle of violence will continue. I agree with many commentators who found the lack of condemnation or even mention of Hamas as deeply concerning. Just as Tlaib's status as the lone Palestinian in Congress gives her a responsibility to speak up for Palestinians, it also gives her a responsibility to represent genuine opposition to Hamas and terrorism. Likewise, the idea that Israel would respond to over 1,000 of its citizens being murdered by lifting the blockade and pulling out of the West Bank was a rather absurd notion for the reasons I laid out a couple of weeks ago. Second, she shared several tweets claiming Israel was responsible for bombing the hospital in Gaza. It is one thing for an Instagram influencer or a wannabe journalist to do that, but Tlaib is a public official, and in times of war, she needs to be extremely careful about the things she is sharing. As we've covered since that attack, many of those suggestions were erroneous, and that should be called out. Third, and finally, while it might be true that from the river to the sea has developed different meanings in different spaces, it has meant one thing for a long time. I think it is quite obviously true that it means literally the end of Israel and all that comes with it. In Tlaib's usage of the slogan, that ending is one where Jews live as a minority in a single state in peace and harmony, side by side with Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. In many, many other people's usage, it means killing or forcibly removing the Israelis and Jews who are currently living between the river and the sea. The quote-unquote destruction of Zionists and the Zionist movement and all of those associated with it. There is a reason so many Israelis and Jews find the expression abhorrent, and I struggle to believe Tlaib doesn't know that. On a personal level, I know hearing it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Ultimately, framing from the river to the sea as a call for peace, justice, and harmony in Israel and Palestine ignores decades and decades of how the expression was used and what it was intended to communicate. Middle East Studies professor Ezzedine Fashir put it like this, quote, Now, I heard Representative Tlaib saying she means she has developed this meaning that it means freedom for all, everybody, from rivers to sea, and so on. And it's a very commendable definition, but it is not the common definition. And that begs the question about, you know, can you use a sentence that's already used in a certain way and then have your own definition of it? That's not for me to answer, end quote. It seems to me like many of the people who find this more recent progressive redefinition convincing are those who are new to this conflict. Tlaib is decidedly not new, and Israelis and Jews shouldn't be expected to hear it as something other than what it has meant for so long. As Seth Mandel put it above, the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is not, in fact, open to interpretation. It is open to gaslighting and revisionist propaganda, as are all things. And while I strongly disagree with Tlaib doubling down on the phrase, as I said at the beginning, I don't believe censoring her was necessary. It's not as if Tlaib herself was chanting the slogan in the video or posting it, and I empathize with the tremendous amount of responsibility she must be feeling to represent Palestinians in Congress right now. But I do think she was wrong to post the video, wrong to defend it, wrong not to correct the record about the hospital bombing, and wrong not to more forcefully condemn terrorism in the wake of the initial attacks. Just as she has a right to accuse Biden of supporting genocide and to call for a ceasefire, her colleagues have a right to call her out when she has aired. We'll be right back after this quick break. All right, that is it for my take, which brings us to your questions answered. This one's from Chuck in Canyon Lake, Texas. 
Chuck said, I just wanted to comment on an interesting observation. Lately, you seem to be citing lack of experience as a negative thing, both for the new speaker and now for Dean Phillips. Remind me, how much experience did Obama have before he became president? It seems that on the one hand, you criticize long-term members of Congress for their inability to do things differently, and you support term limits. Yet on the other hand, you also cite a lack of experience as a shortcoming. Is there some middle ground you support that I'm missing? Okay, so this is actually a fair point, Chuck. Uh, I have been writing about my concerns over Representative Dean Phillips being inexperienced for a presidential campaign and over new Speaker of the House Mike Johnson being inexperienced for that position. I've also spoken about this in regards to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. At the same time, I've also expressed concerns that Congress is too old, implying that we need less experience in government. Those two points are, at their heart, paradoxical, but I don't take either position to its extreme, and I definitely think there is a reasonable, agreeable, middle ground position between them. To illustrate that, I have three general points in response to your question. One, if I'd been writing Tangle at the time that Obama announced the presidential campaign, I would have had some concerns about his experience as well, but his background isn't the exact same as Phillips. Obama was a one-term senator, and Phillips is a one-term representative, but the Senate is generally a little more primetime than the House, since there are fewer people in that chamber to shoulder the load. Obama also had seven years of state legislature experience and a professorship in constitutional law before his Senate run to prepare him for government. He certainly seemed like a more experienced legislator than Phillips or other candidates whose experience I've criticized, like Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Two, experience is not the end-all be-all. I don't think most people are single-issue voters, and in writing about Johnson and Phillips, I think I'm going about it like most people, tallying up pros and cons and trying to look at the balance of things. If you do that exercise, then objectively, experience is a con for Phillips. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as too much time served, and it doesn't mean he would be a bad president. It just means there's reason to believe he may not be prepared on day one. And three, standards for what qualifies as inexperience should shift a bit in two ways. One, when it comes to looking for a president, our standards should be higher than if we're looking for a state representative or a congressman. I think that's fair. Second, if we do have term limits or we vote out more incumbents in Congress, then what qualifies for being an experienced legislature changes. And to be clear, I don't think serving only one term in Congress makes someone inexperienced in government. I also don't think someone running for Senate with state House experience is wet behind the ears. I do think, however, that one term in Congress without committee membership and without signature legislation does qualify as inexperience when it comes to presidential or speakership qualifications. All right, that is it for your questions answered, which brings us to our under the radar section. Authorities are on the hunt for someone who sent suspicious letters, some containing fentanyl, to election offices across the country. In at least five states, the counting of ballots were delayed in local races after the envelopes were received. The letters were sent to election offices in Georgia, Nevada, California, Oregon, and Washington. Some were intercepted before arriving, and four contained fentanyl, according to the FBI. Election workers have been facing increasing threats of violence across the country in recent years. The Associated Press has the story, and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. The number of privilege resolutions introduced in the House since 1983 was 151. The number of privilege resolutions during that period that involved the disapproval, censure, or expulsion of House members was 25. The total number of censures in House history, including Tlaib's, was 26. The first year a censure of a House member was recorded was 1832. 
That was after Representative William Stanberry was censured for insulting then-House Speaker Andrew Stevenson during a floor debate. The number of House members who were censured between 1890 and 2010 was seven. The number of House members who have been censured since 2021 was three. The number of U.S. senators who have been censured since 1789 is nine. And the most recent censure in the Senate was 1990. That was Senator David Durenberger, the Republican from Minnesota, who was censured for unethical conduct related to personal dealings, Senate reimbursements, and campaign funds. All right, that is it for our numbers section. Last but not least, our have a nice day story. With the game tied 2-2 and about a minute left in the first overtime session, Tegra Mobelli scored his second goal of the game to clinch the Class A state championship in boys' soccer in Maine. It was a euphoric moment for him, his team, and his city, as Mobelli delivered a much-needed moment of triumph for the city of Lewiston, which was recently the site of a horrific mass shooting. Bringing a moment of joy to their hometown motivated the Lewiston Blue Devils throughout their run to the title. We've been saying the past few weeks, do it for the city, Lewiston goalie Payson Goyette said. It was the joy we brought to the fans, which made them go crazy, Mabel told the newspaper. We just wanted to give back to the city with all they have gone through. It brings me great joy and to everyone who made it happen. The Lewiston Sun Journal has the story and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. As always, if you want to support our work, you can go to retangle.com forward slash membership and consider becoming a member. Don't forget to go check out our YouTube channel for our latest interview up there. That's been catching quite a bit of attention and some controversy. And we'll be right back here, same time tomorrow. Have a good one. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited and engineered by John Wall. The script is edited by our managing editor, Ari Weitzman, Will Kaback, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who is also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. And if you're looking for more from Tangle, please go to retangle.com and check out our website. Retangle.